Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, Hebrews uh, tells us that you are speaking to us in your word, uh, that this word you caused to be written by your spirit is also the word by which you address us now, that this word is what the Spirit says. Help us to receive this word as spoken by you to us. Help us to understand it. Help me to speak it truthfully and clearly. And gracious Father, help us to heed what it says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when you come to a fork on the road you are travelling, it's always helpful to know, isn't it, uh, where each branch of the fork, where each road will take you. That will have a large part to play in the decision you make between those two roads, won't it? I mean, if you want to get to Sydney, if that's your destination, you won't choose the road that goes to Adelaide. The congregation to whom Hebrews was written is standing, as it were, at a fork in the road pausing in their journey to consider which route to take. They've all set out on the path of faith in Jesus as Lord, confessing the crucified as the Son of God. But some, due to weariness or fear of further persecution or a longing for the old and familiar or not wanting to be different but included in the wider community or just lack of clarity about what's at stake in believing in Jesus, all things that you might feel or experience from time to time, some are considering going back to what they once were becoming members of the synagogue, going back to the old covenant with its law and sacrifices to be right with God, going back to the community that had rejected and condemned Jesus. But they haven't acted yet. Although, as we've read, some do seem to have withdrawn from the Christian community, become lukewarm in their commitment, just letting themselves drift along without any determination to stay with Jesus and his people, some appear to have become sluggish in engaging with God's truth. And yet they're still paused at this fork in the road. Moses or Jesus, synagogue or church, listening as the author of Hebrews has been making his case for the uniqueness and greatness of Jesus and for how much better the relationship with God that Jesus brings the new covenant is to what they'd experienced before and oh, listening as he tells them how important it is to keep following Jesus, keep confessing him as Lord. And as he winds up his argument, as we come towards the end of the book, he in a sense turns to look down each branch of the road to ask his hearers, where will going down that road lead you? Where will following the route of relying on Moses and the priesthood and the sacrifice given at Sinai, where will that bring you to? Oh, and where will going down the route of persevering faith in Jesus bring you to? In our passage, he's going to contrast destinations to show that following Jesus is so much better, that it 
brings us to a future so much better than the old covenant could ever bring us to. And at that stage, some of you might be saying, probably again, I mean, this is the whole problem with the book of Hebrews. It's warning me about a temptation I have never had. Oh, I may be getting weary, not have the same enthusiasm I had for following Jesus as when I first believed. I may be tired or growing indifferent, but I've never been tempted to become a Jew to embracing the synagogue. It's never come into my mind. In fact, all this language of covenant and sacrifice and priesthood just come from a foreign world. Well, that may be true. You may never have been tempted to return to the synagogue. Yet this is still a word for you. As you consider your choices, face your temptations to turn aside from following Jesus. It's still a word for you, even if you're not tempted to return to Judaism. For in showing that the destination of faith, that the destination faith in Jesus brings you to is so much better than what that old covenant with Israel made at Mount Sinai could ever bring someone to. Our author is actually showing that faith in Jesus, persevering in following Jesus, will alone bring you to what you were made for. Life at peace with your creator, the just and holy God, eternal life. You see, the outcome of faith in Jesus is not just a comparatively better destination. No, it's not just Jesus is better than Moses. No, the outcome of faith in Jesus is a superlatively better destination. It is absolutely better, better than what any other path will bring you to. So listen, so listen as our author compares these destinations by contrasting two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now we know from Scripture, Exodus 19, as you heard, about the experience of God the Old Covenant brought. This he says to his hearers and to us, this is not the experience of believers in Jesus. You have not come. But the Israelites who left Egypt with Moses did come to Mount Sinai. The sense of come here is approached and then remain near and Sinai was the destination of their first journey through the wilderness. While they didn't go up onto Mount Sinai, they did draw near. They remained surrounding its base. And our author says, you can see the relationship with God that the old covenant, the Sinai covenant brings in the experience of the people when that covenant was inaugurated, begun, when they gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. It was an experience of gloom and darkness, fearful and terrifying. It was an experience that actually brought home the distance between God and the people. They could not even touch the mountain. An absolute prohibition emphasised by saying 
Even beasts who touch the mountain must die. It's clear, isn't it? The people could not draw near to God without dying. More, they couldn't even listen to God's voice. They begged God to speak through Moses. And even this Moses, the mediator of this covenant, when approaching God himself, trembled with fear. That's where the Old Covenant starts. Distance and fear. And that's where the Old Covenant leaves them. Knowing they're far off from God, unable to come into God's holy presence without being destroyed, with no way to come to God by themselves. And as our authors taught us in chapters 7 to 10, that distance is actually what the sacrificial system given at Sinai reinforced. Remember, the high priest could only come once a year into the holy place, just a sign of God's presence amongst them. And he could never come without a sacrifice for sin, and those sacrifices were only able to cleanse the externals, never the conscience, and they were always repeated, always a reminder of their sin, never able to take it away once and for all. And so he says to them and to us, you want to go back? well, go down the path of returning to Judaism and this is where you'll end up. Distant from God, fearful of him because he is holy and just and you are unholy and sinners. I'll go down that path and all you can anticipate is death in his presence. You know, that destination is not a good place to be, is it? Because... God is the judge of all, and one day we will all come into his presence to receive what we deserve for what we have done and said and thought. And so to be distant from God now is to be in a place without peace or hope, just this continuing deep anxiety about the inevitable, death and judgment when you face the Holy God. But he says to us, the path of faith in Jesus, of relying on him and the sacrifice he offers of himself on the cross, that will bring you to such a better place. Speaking to believers, he says, you have come. And again, the, the sense is you have approached, you have drawn near and remain near to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's in a sense showing us how good this destination is, who belongs there. Oh, and how anyone can be there. He's saying, you have come believing in Jesus, as it were, has brought you in your journey to the very gates of the heavenly city. Entering that city will be the outcome of persevering faith. And you can be confident of that now, believing in Jesus. Oh yes, we already anticipate some of these blessings. We are citizens of God now. We can now draw near in Christ to God. We can be confident of all that is promised because faith is the assurance 
of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But we're not, as it were, in the heavenly city yet. We're still waiting to receive what our author calls in verse 28, that kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, what our author is speaking of is is not just or primarily a present heavenly reality. No, what he's speaking of are end-time realities, a different real destination, a destination believers can be sure of. You have come, but we still await. Now, he portrays the goodness of this destination in language drawn from the Old Testament, which is not surprising because he's speaking to people familiar with the Old Testament. But he doesn't go to the Old Testament just because his first hearers were familiar with these images. Now he goes to the Old Testament because, well, he's speaking of something yet unseen, a reality that can only be known from the word. But these Old Testament images are truthful because... The Old Testament is God's word, the word of the God who knows the future, who knows what he will bring to pass and so can tell us truthfully about it. And our author is saying to all believers in Jesus, the believers that believing in Jesus, you can know your destination is the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, because to belong to Jesus is to already belong to there. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In that one phrase, that one series of phrases describing the destination, he communicates to his first hearers just how good, desirable and great the destination of faith in Jesus. There's just so much Old Testament description of this city. It's called Mount Zion because Mount Zion was the part of Jerusalem on which the city of David had been built. And it came in prophecy to be the site of the city of God. That was the city we've learnt in Hebrews that God has already prepared for his people. And it's the city his people we saw in chapter 11 long for. It was glorious the city founded by God himself. Oh, it's the place where God himself is said to dwell. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. It's the city which is the centre of his reign. Through Christ is king. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. It's the city that will be exalted over all, the centre of the earth, the highest of the mountains, to which all the treasures of the nations, all the riches of culture and civilization would flow. And it's a place where God's people would dwell forever in peace and security, for God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. And not just, you know, peace, freedom from the threat of external enemies, No, it's the city where they'll dwell free from the threat of any evil, where the curse is reversed, where they won't hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. 
And as a city, what it speaks of is life together, life at peace with each other as we enjoy peace with God. Now, just touching on a few references really won't give you a sense of the greatness and the glory of that city. Why don't you go and read Revelation 21 and 22 and meditate on that vision so that you can feel how good it will be to be there where you will see God, where you will dwell in his presence, where the glory of the nation comes in and where all harm or hurt is removed. Who will we meet in this city? Who belong there? Well, there are the innumerable angels in festal gathering. There's no need to fear these powerful beings whom we met in chapter 1. And we're told they have joy in this city. They're having a celebration at the salvation of God's people and the establishment of God's reign. And so this destination is a place of joy and light, not gloom and fear, a place of harmony for all creation. Oh, and this is the place of the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Just as Israel gathered in assembly at the foot of Mount Sinai, so here it gathered the true Israel. You may remember Israel was called God's firstborn son. Now the firstborn are the true sons of God, called in chapter 2 Jesus' brothers, those men and women who are included in Israel by faith in the Son, who is the true Israelite. And it says they're enrolled. This is the completed company of believers in Jesus. They all have their names enrolled there, so they'll never be forgotten, never be missed. Their names are written in the citizens' register, and so they truly belong and belong securely. Oh, and in this city we will come to God who is the judge of all. This is the city where God dwells. And so instead of that distance, believers are in the presence of God. As they now draw near to him by faith, well, on that day they will actually come into his presence in person. And notice what would have been a terror before to be in the presence of the judge of all, is now a comfort. As a judge, as the judge, he establishes justice and righteousness in which his people transform delight and his law and rule go out from Zion and there can be no evil, no injustice where he dwells. Such brief phrases, but their content is so rich to be in the presence of the holy, just God without fear. How can this be? Where we're told in the following descriptions, starting with the description of the citizens of this place, here we meet the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is the assurance that no believer will miss out. Oh, and that we can be there because of the work of Jesus. The spirits of the righteous speak of the godly dead, those who live now in the realm of the spirit. And we have been told that the righteous are those who live by faith in Jesus. 
And by that faith in Jesus, we've been told that they've been perfected once and for all by his sacrifice. Here, their trust in Jesus has reached its consummation and their presence is a permanent belonging. For Jesus, their saviour, their living high priest, is always present. In this city is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Those who live in this place always relate to God now on the basis of this new covenant, which is so much better than the old, for this is the covenant, the relationship where their sins are forgiven forever. And the presence of Jesus, God and man, the eternal Son who took on flesh and blood, is the guarantee of the believer's eternal belonging in the city, in his continuing humanity, in his effective death, in his always living in the presence of the Father, interceding for his people, he guarantees their being able to come to the Holy God and live with him, to abide with him forever. And that effective death is spoken of, is spoken of and referred to as the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the effect of Jesus' death is here pictured in terms of the blood the high priest sprinkled before the ark on the Day of Atonement. The blood the high priest sprinkled to cleanse the tabernacle from the defilement of Israel's unintentional sin so God could continue to live amongst his people. It's saying that Jesus' death cleanses believers for all time, that it stops our presence from ever defiling the dwelling place of God. And in doing that, our author says that Jesus' shed blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the blood of innocent Abel, we learnt in Genesis 4, cries out from the ground for vengeance and brought a curse on the one who shed it. Oh, and we learn later on in Numbers that the blood of the unjustly killed pollutes the land. Now just think about that. Think about how much blood has been shed since Abel's time on this earth. Human violence, our assault upon the image of God in our neighbour has defiled the earth, a defilement under which the earth groans and from which it can never be cleansed by itself. And yet the blood of innocent Jesus, unjustly killed, speaks a better word. Better because it brings cleansing and blessing after so much death. Better for it brings victory over death. Better because it reverses the curse, the effects of human sin. For all creation, for with the new Jerusalem comes the new heaven and earth. How much better the destination faith in Jesus brings us to than that arrived under the old covenant. Not fear, but joy. Not death, but rich life. Not dread of God, but secure belonging. Not distance from God, but living, abiding in the living God's presence. Not a mediator himself beset by fear, but a son who has dealt with sin forever. And that is a destination 
that only faith in Jesus will bring you to. No other path, no other way you pursue will bring you to the heavenly city. For no other path can make you holy before the holy God can cleanse you from the effects, the defilement of your sin, your disobedience to God. And the inability of the old covenant, of the Sinai covenant, to bring that cleansing, to bring us to God, actually emphasises that. See, see, think about the old covenant. It wasn't the creation of human imagination. It was given by God, words spoken by God, containing the good and righteous law of God. Yet what does it do? By revealing God's holiness, it just brings home our distance, brings home our unfitness for God's presence as we are because of our failure to keep that God's good law, brings home to us that death awaits us if we were to meet the holy God. Now, if that's true of the God-given old covenant, think now of those other paths that people pursue for life, paths you may, may have been on once or even tempted to return to. You see, some choose the path of denying God so that they can be comfortable with themselves. Well, that won't work. God won't go away just because you choose not to believe in him and he's given us plenty of proof of his existence from the order and design of his creation right through to raising his son from the dead and pouring out his spirit. Oh, some choose the path of denying God's holiness, but that won't work. God won't change his character for you to accommodate your failure to love him and love your neighbour. He won't disown his law or his expectation that his creatures living in his world keep it. Some choose the path of actually denying that they've sinned, claiming that they've done nothing deserving judgment. Well, that won't work. God gets to decide what sin is and what is not and he won't change his standards for you and he's already pronounced his verdict on your life. All have sinned. Oh, some think that they can work themselves into being fit for God, that somehow the good they do outweighs the evil that they've done. That won't work. If you have a blot on a sheet of writing paper, writing beautifully on the rest of the page won't remove the blot, won't stop the whole page from being spoiled. Oh, making your own sacrifices won't work. If the sacrifices God has instituted can't deal permanently with sin, then the sacrifices you make to your gods won't deal with your sin. Some choose to abandon Jesus to put their faith in money or pleasure or their, well, themselves. But that won't work. They might distract you temporarily, but you will still stand before the living God. But faith in Jesus the Son sent into the world to save, faith in his sacrifice of himself offered on the cross will bring you forgiveness for your rebellion against God, for your ignoring of God. It will remove the stain of your sin from the page of your life. It will make you fit to live with the Holy God, will bring you to the city of the living God because it is the way God himself in his love has provided. Faith in Jesus as the fulfiller of God's eternal plan of salvation will bring you that life, bring you 
to this community of peace and joy, bringing you to the renewal of all creation, to a life without death or grief, to a world with justice where you do not need to fear justice, bring you to the end of grief. Faith in Jesus alone brings you to this good, this best destination. And so, says the author, having presented these two paths, heed the call to persevere in trusting Jesus. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At Sinai, the people could not bear God's speaking. But throughout this letter, the author has been clear that God is now graciously speaking to us, speaking through his Son, speaking through his Spirit-given scriptures. How shall we escape, he said in chapter 2, if we neglect the words spoken to us by our Lord Jesus? Oh, today, he said in chapter 3, today do not harden your heart for it's the Holy Spirit speaking. As God called on his people at Sinai to believe and obey, so he is calling us in his word this morning, in his gospel word, to repent and believe in his Son and to keep on believing in Jesus. Do not refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking directly to you from his word this morning. And he is saying, Trust my son, keep trusting my son, keep listening to him, keep paying the cost to follow him. And God reinforces the urgency of accepting, embracing what he is saying by a lesson from history and a lesson from prophecy. For if they did not escape him who warned them from heaven, Sorry, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will he escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Remember the experience of Israel, of that Sinai generation who refused to heed God's voice, who despite their experience, an experience of spectacular power, so many say they crave, despite that experience, hardened their hearts worshipped the golden calf, turned back at the border of the land of promise and fell in the wilderness. They did not escape, refusing him who warned them through Moses. Oh, and remember the experience of the nation Israel. Because they didn't listen to God, they experienced the covenant curses, loss of land and exile. Well, says God, how do you expect to escape the judgment of God if you don't listen to God speaking to you in the gospel? Because that message has greater dignity and seriousness because it's a warning from heaven. For the bringer of that gospel message is not Moses, but the Son who comes from heaven. I mean, that's what the author has said back in chapters 1 and 2. Jesus is the eternal God. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being. And it's actually what Jesus says of himself in John chapter 3. 
contrasting himself with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who is of the earth and belongs to the earth. But then Jesus, speaking of himself, says, He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus is the one from heaven who speaks from heaven. And the warning from heaven is actually summarised in John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life because God's wrath rests on him or her. Don't refuse God when he speaks because history shows God is an active judge, active to keep his word. And he's warned us what will happen if we turn back from following Jesus. And there's also a lesson from prophecy to stress the finality of this salvation uh, that we're being summoned to embrace and persevere in. There will be a time when there is no more opportunity and that time is close, for there's now only one thing to happen in God's plan and that's the end. At that time, still speaking of Sinai, his voice God's voice shook the earth, but now God has promised in Haggai, yet once more I'll shake not only the earth but also the heavens. That's the end of all this creation. And the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Our author quotes Haggai chapter 2 to emphasise that God is going to wind this creation up. And that's the time when Jerusalem will be exalted, the time when his kingdom, his reign is established and all human kingdoms, all rebellion against his rule, judged and destroyed. God says, yet once more. You have had the warning, now there is only the end of this creation to come and the bringing in of the reign of God. And how we listen to God now will determine where we stand then. Those who have faith in Jesus will share in that reign. They will belong to that city. And so knowing that we should persevere in faith and knowing God's word is sure that the kingdom is ours, the heavenly city is ours, our lives, said the author, should be lives of worship that flow from the gratitude of genuine faith. And we'll think more of that worship next week. But for now, which road will you choose? Which road will you keep on choosing? Will you choose the one that brings you to the heavenly city or the other way that will leave you distant from the holy God and fearful? Where do you want to end up? See, God in Hebrews has laid the question before us in many different ways throughout the book. And he's been very clear and given us good grounds for trusting Jesus, who took on our flesh to defeat our enemy, who endured suffering to equip himself to be our great high priest, who offered himself on the cross to cleanse us once and for all from sin, who always lives in the presence of God to save us, who is the saviour no other can be. So if you've never trusted him, think, what will the road you are on now bring you to? What lies ahead of you? What's the destination you can hope for? 
Consider Jesus, who can bring you to the heavenly city, to life. And if you're a believer, well, don't allow yourself to be apathetic about your following of Jesus. Don't withdraw from meeting with and from the encouragement of his people. Don't let yourself drift away, carried along by the currents of our culture. And don't be deceived into thinking that there is any other way to come to the heavenly city. Listen to the one who warns from heaven. Listen to him. And so come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, give us minds to meditate on your word so that we would know the wonder and the richness of what you bring those who trust your son Jesus to, the wonder and the richness of the heavenly Jerusalem. And Father, we pray, so move our hearts that we heed what you say. We don't refuse you speaking to us from your word. Renew our determination to follow Jesus. Renew, renew our zeal to know him better and to know the glory of what he has done, what he alone can do. And gracious Father, of your great mercy, bring us at the end to dwell in your presence to see your face, which is so unimaginable to us now, and to delight in Jesus, the mediator of our covenant, whose sprinkled blood cleanses us forever and brings the renewed creation. We ask this in Jesus' name.